0: Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. There's a historical theme to this episode of the podcast, but before we turn to cycle touring in the battlefields of the First World War, I've got an invitation for you. I'd like you to join me and a bunch of other good cycling folk at a fantastic pub in the beautiful Welsh countryside, where we will spend a weekend celebrating the centenary of one of the great rides in British cycling history, a hundred years ago, on the last weekend of March 1919, three members of the Anfield Bicycle Club rode their bikes from the city of Chester across the English border into Wales. They stopped for the night at the West Arms, a historic drovers' inn, with the intention of continuing on the next day on a rough track across the Berwyn Mountains. Well, that night it snowed heavily and the people at the inn said that they would be crazy to try and cross the mountains in that weather. The three cyclists were not deterred, and they set off into the snow. One of the trio was Walter McGregor Robinson, a prolific cycling journalist who wrote under the pen name Wayfarer. He wrote an account of the ride in the magazine Cycling, which caught the imagination of a generation of British cyclists, inspiring them to seek out new adventures On two wheels, and to explore ever wilder and more remote parts of the country. Wayfarer's route across the Berwins has since become a staple amongst adventurous cycle tourists and mountain bikers. The track now bears his name, and there's a memorial to Wayfarer at the Summit Pass. To mark the centenary of that ride, I'm helping to organise a weekend of bike rides, slideshows, and a dinner on the Saturday night in the pub. It's all based in Llanarmon Duffrin Keiriog at the West Arms Hotel, which is exactly where Wayfarer and his friends stayed. The nearest big town is Wrexham, or if you're coming by train, um, the nearest train station is Churk, So it's fairly accessible from all parts of Britain. If you'd like to come and join us, that'd be fantastic. It'd be great to have a few listeners to the bike show along to join in the fun. So I'll put full details. You can find out more on the Bike Show website, which is thebikeshow.net. Now, Wayfarer's ride took place just a few months after the armistice that ended the First World War. Indeed, Wayfarer had fought himself in the trenches before he was wounded in the leg and sent home. And it's to those battlefields that we now turn. Tom Isit is a journalist and cyclist who spent the last few years researching and riding the battlefields of the First World War. I spoke to him at the end of last year, and because our conversation was recorded last year, when we talk about this year, we mean 2018. And when we talk about next year, we're actually talking about this year, 2019, if that makes sense. I'm sure you can work it out for yourself. Anyway, I began at the beginning by asking Tom why... Of all the places in the world where you could go for a cycle tour, why choose the battlefields of the First World War?
1: Well, it came from some research I was doing into uh, a bicycle race that occurred over the battlefields in 1919. And the more I researched, the more I thought, well, that would be an interesting thing to retrace. So, That was it, basically. I retraced the route of the Circuit de Chambre de Bataille, which was held in 1919, and found myself, yeah, in the snow in France, having a miserable time. That race sounds extraordinary, to have a bicycle race in a battlefield
0: only a year after the, the battle had ended. Let's get to the race in a minute. Maybe if you want to back up by describing what the Western Front was and why it was such an important focal point in the Great War.
1: It was the front on which the the British and the French were engaged against the Germans. For the British, it was the major front, although we did send troops elsewhere. Yeah, it was where where we stood toe-to-toe with the Germans from 1914 to 1918 and um, slugged it out.
0: And so this is trench warfare. This is hundreds of thousands of people being killed and wounded on that strip of land sort of Belgium and, and northern France.
1: The western front stretched from the North Sea in Belgium to the Swiss border with France and yeah it was 400 odd miles of trenches, mud, blood, misery, you know, all the, all the stuff that we've come to kind of associate with World War 1.
0: I. I know it's a popular destination for travelers. Um, I've driven through it and, and seen kind of various things along the way myself and seen other people visiting it. And I'm sure people have been visiting it almost since just after the, after,
1: after the war ended.
0: Are there a lot of people travelling around by bike?
1: Not many, at least not many that I came across. It tends to be people in cars from Britain go to the Somme or Ypres, which is the, the major fronts where um, battlefields where the British fought. You do get some people who venture a bit further afield to the French battlefields, but they tend to do it all in the car um, because it's, you know, it's an hour's drive from Calais.
0: And so aside from the connection to this race that you were looking at, what makes the bicycle the perfect um, instrument for for touring a battlefield?
1: It allows you to understand the topography. You know, if you go to somewhere like Ypres in the car, it feels pan flat. There don't appear to be any... Rises and falls, but if you do it on a bike, you suddenly find yourself slogging up a gentle incline and freewheeling down the other side. You know the, the experience of the British soldiers fighting from Eep up to Passchendaele. It doesn't feel like a a gentle rise in the car, but on a bicycle, you feel every every meter gained.
0: Particularly now, with the centenary of the armistice, and there's been a lot of coverage. Um, that fantastic. Peter Jackson film with a colorization of yep. the contemporary footage. We, I think most of us have an idea of, of what it looked like at the time, or at least we've seen the photographs of what it looked like of the time. We clearly can't smell it, we can't taste it. We uh, uh, thank you know, God. We, we are we are we are very much removed a hundred years later, even with this photographic evidence. But what's it what's it like now? What 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 is what remains of of the war?
1: It, it entirely depends where you go. In uh, Flanders, around Ypres, there's a fair amount preserved. There are some very good museums there. There's a fair amount to look at, as well as, obviously, the cemeteries. And you can look at the cemeteries all along the Western Front. The Somme is also, these days, farmland. So it's it's very badly preserved, if you like. There's not much physical evidence of the war anymore. But as you go further south through the French sectors, places like uh, Chemin des Dames and near Verdun, there's a there's a huge amount to look at if you want to go and see these things. And they are quite extraordinary, some of the places. Probably the most amazing place is uh, a place between Reims, or Reims, as they call it, and Verdun. Uh, it's called Le Mans de Massige. And uh, it's at the top of a hill, it was a, a few acres of land bought by some amateur archaeologists, and they dug out the trenches from um, the First World War, 1915 mostly. Um, and it's it's incredibly well preserved. You know, you, you go there and you feel like the war only happened 10 minutes ago. It's a really extraordinary place. Another place I, I think is fantastic is the area around Verdun, where the French uh, a million Frenchmen stood toe-to-toe with a million Germans, um, and in a 300-day battle, they just, yeah, killed each other in enormous quantities. It's an incredibly sad um, and rather sepulchral place. It's It's got a very strange feeling, but, you know, it's very powerful and very moving. How
0: did it make you feel? My feeling, having sort of whipped through it on in the car. Actually, I was going to watch um, a bicycle race in. Um, I think I was going. Was I going to watch Paris Roubaix or something like that? And I stopped at a couple of cemeteries and walked yeah. a little bit of a front line. And I mean, obviously, seeing those cemeteries is is just heartbreaking. But I didn't feel mm. from the landscape as it as it is now a, a tremendous connection to. The images that I've seen of the war, I, I just didn't. I didn't feel like okay. Now I'm now I'm in it. I, I hate to say this, but uh, with the exception of the cemeteries, it did feel a little bit underwhelming. Tell tell me why I, I must have missed something.
1: I don't think you did. I think an awful lot of what you get out of those battlefield visits comes from reading a fair amount beforehand or some kind of personal um, investment in it. I had. Uh, four relatives who all fought in that war. Um, Three of them came home, one of them didn't. And I did quite a lot of research into my great-uncle Jack, um, who, uh, by the age of 20, was a veteran of the Somme of Arras and of Passchendaele, and he was killed just after his 20th birthday. And knowing a bit about him and following in his footsteps, um, for me, brought the whole thing Closer, if you like. I think the other thing that um, affects me a lot is the the young age of these guys. Most of them were, you know, late teens, early 20s, um, the same age as my three sons. I've got three sons who would, in those days, have gone off to fight in a war. And the idea of them being thrown into this kind of blizzard of bullets and shells is, it's heartbreaking. And I... I I become quite emotional on the battlefield, uh, much to the uh, embarrassment of the rest of my family. But, you know, that's that's how I view it.
0: Talk a little bit about the the journey that you made. I mean, the practicalities, sort of what distances you were doing, how you were determining your route, the kind of roads that you were that you were riding along.
1: My Western Front trip was following as closely in the wheel tracks of the, uh, the 1919 race as I could. Um, So that meant sitting down with copies of old French newspapers and finding out the precise villages through which the race passed and then plotting them on an online route planner. Um, Obviously, quite a lot of the roads that they used are now under dual carriageways or motorways, so I had to work out ways of getting round those particular sections. But yeah, I just followed the race route as closely as I could um, and then cut it up into sort of 60 mile chunks, which is, you know, 60 miles is enough to give you a decent day on the bike, plus a couple of hours of sightseeing. So, you know, I'd ride for 10, 15 miles, get off my bike and tramp around the battlefield, get back on my bike and, you know, off you go again. That was basically how how I put the trip together. Um, there were some catastrophic errors in my planning at various points. so I did far more off-road riding on 25 mil road tires than i would have liked but um but it was all fine in the end in a perfect world yeah maybe a a gravel bike or an adventure bike would have been slightly more suitable um i did it on a a seven and a half kilo road bike um so but it did the job and you know i don't think people should be afraid of heading off road on, on ordinary bikes and ordinary tires um but you know it might have been comfortable on a surly trucker or something.
0: And and how did you choose the places to, to stop at, to you know, take a closer look at? Are they things that you'd identified in advance or things that just struck you as you passed them?
1: It was mostly stuff that I had planned in advance to visit. I mean, there are any number of guidebooks on the, the Western Front. And, you know, I'd identified sites where there was something to look at or that were significant in some way. Um, but then inevitably you get sidetracked by, you know, a sign by the side of the road um, and off you go on a diversion to look at something else. But, but no, I, I am a bit of a planner and I do like to know in advance what I'll be looking at, because my biggest fear is that someone says, what did you think of such and such a place? And I go, oh, damn, I missed it. Yeah, I know the feeling. Um,
0: one one thing that struck me um, driving through through the Western Front area is is the signposts on the side of the road that say this is where the front line was in you know April nineteen yeah. fifteen, and then you go on about you know in a blink of an eye in a, in a car really probably tr- going along at about sixty miles an hour, and it suddenly this is where the front was. 6 months later and and how many lives later and and how lit, how small the distances were that they were fighting over i mean that that's it's just it's just un- unbelievable isn't it?
1: it it is extraordinary by by modern standards but then it was a whole new way of waging war and nobody had the faintest idea of how to go about it you know in 1914 warfare was basically napoleonic whereas by 1918 it was what we would recognize now so so yeah those those tiny gains i mean that, you know you have to take them in context because in one thousand nine hundred and fourteen it was a war of movement, and you know there weren 't any trenches, and equally in the latter half of one thousand nine hundred and eighteen, it was a war of movement and no trenches, but in the middle, everyone just stuck where they were and and yeah, even on a bicycle, you can cycle across the Somme in you know, half an hour or so, and you know you 've done. Eight months of fighting it's extraordinary
0: well let's let's get to the to the race that you um that you were following the route of um a bicycle race around the battlefields of the western front in nineteen nineteen why
1: looking back on it now it scarcely seems conceivable that anyone would have even contemplated such a thing because you know there was this swathe of devastation across france um and you know there were no roads. there had been over four years of of shelling of um fighting of of military vehicles and that was the thing that did most of the damage to the roads was the supply vehicles that went backwards and forwards um to the front and destroyed um the pave roads destroyed the macadam roads by the end of the war those roads were effectively potholes um with a bit of road in between sometimes. Um, So yeah, to decide to do a 2,000 kilometre race across roads that no longer existed, uh, to my mind, is insane. But Le Petit Journal newspaper decided they wanted to celebrate the end of the war and celebrate France getting Alsace and Lorraine back, which they'd lost in the uh, Franco-Prussian War in 1870. So to celebrate that they decided to have a race through the battlefields to celebrate having won and getting Alsace Lorraine back. So that's what they did.
0: And so who was racing in this, in this race of the battlefield in
1: 1919? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, these were a collect, a selection really of, of established pros who'd made it through the war, um, and enthusiastic amateurs. And, uh, About 130 of them signed up to do this race, which started in April 1919. Yeah, they had about 130 entrants. 87 of them made it to the start line, um, mostly because a lot of the young men couldn't get out of the army. They weren't demobbed, a lot of them, until late in 1919 um, or even 1920. So, you know, they either had to get leave from their regiments or they had to have been demobbed. so, yeah, those were the sort of people who took part. And there were some very famous French riders, people like Jean Alavoie, um, Paul Duboc, you know, those guys from the, the pre-war Tour de France era, uh, many of them were present. Um, those that survived, obviously, because uh, France lost quite a few of her top riders during the war.
0: And so how did they mount a bike race in this quagmire with no roads? Was it cyclocross?
1: Well it kind of was really. They asked um Steens the guy who organized the Tour de France. They got him to work out a parkour for the race. Um and obviously he was a, a notorious liar when it came to what was acceptable for bike racing and what wasn't. You know, he was the bloke who sent them all over the Tourmalet on in 1910. Um so he planned out the route which nobody could say wasn't a good idea because no one had ever been to the battlefields. It, Since the war started, they were out of bounds. So Steens went off in um, early 1919, and uh, I suspect he just stayed at home and made it all up. But apparently, he was out on the roads looking at them and deciding where checkpoints were going to go and where stages would start and finish. Steens came up with a parkour, and the newspaper published it, and that that was that. In fairness, not the whole race wasn't on the battlefields. It ran started in Strasbourg, which was in um, Alsace. So that hadn't been affected by the war. And the race then went north all the way to uh, Luxembourg and then Brussels. All of that was behind the World War I front line. It was only um, stage three that they crossed over um, into northern France. And that's where they began to experience the horrendous road conditions.
0: So you've written this book about the race and and your your journey researching it, which is out next year, Um, so everyone can read it when it comes out. But um, I've seen the cover, and it's a very attractive cover, and it describes the race as the toughest stage race ever.
1: Yes. Well, there are all sorts of claims for the toughest stage race ever. The the 1914 Giro d'Italia is generally considered to be the toughest uh, grand tour. But this was... This was much worse because the roads were unspeakably awful and the weather as well was horrendous. There were gale force winds and snow. A metre of snow fell on northern France uh, during the two weeks of the race. So, for instance, the, the, uh, the stage that ran from Brussels through Flanders and across the Somme, uh, that was 300 kilometres in a howling gale and snow. And the winning time was just over 18 hours. Uh, the slowest time was 36 hours. Um, and if you can imagine racing across smashed up pave in the snow for 30 hours, I mean, you know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, the combination of terrible roads and appalling weather, um, in my mind, makes it by far the toughest stage race ever held. And it was so tough, they never had it again.
0: And was it a success? I mean, I guess if they didn't have it again, maybe you could say it wasn't a success. But um, was it a success in terms of the spectacle that it that it created?
1: No, it was an abject failure in every respect. Um, It was going quite well, although the weather and what have you was terrible. But the thing that really uh, killed the race was the fact that they announced the terms of the Treaty of Versailles halfway through. The point of the race was to sell extra newspapers for Le Petit Journal. But of course, the minute the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were announced, nobody gave a damn about the race. Everyone wanted to read about Versailles, uh, particularly the reparations the Germans were going to make to the the Belgians and the French for the damage they'd caused. So the race disappeared from the front page, even of the organising newspaper and was rendered completely irrelevant.
0: And without giving away, um, you know, the outcome of the race, because I'm, I'm sure it's very well described in your book, um, from, a, from a sporting point of view, was it, a compelling, was it a compelling spectacle? Had you not had the Versailles Treaty going on in the background, would it have been a nail biter?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, I mean, it was a nail biter in that, you know, it, no one knew it, who was going to survive because it was, a, it was a race of attrition, you know, very much like the, the Tour de France that year. 87 people started, 21 people finished. There was good racing. There was plenty of cheating. You know, all the things that we'd come to expect from early bike stage racing, it had it all. You know, chicanery, skullduggery, cheating, lying, accusations flying around about other people. Plus, of course, all the performance-enhancing drugs. You know, it was, it was classic 1920s-style racing.
0: And was it regarded as... In good taste, because I think some of us might think, "hmm, not sure quite about this um was it was it regarded as a, as a as an appropriate act of remembrance, celebration, whatever you want to call it
1: absolutely in those days, it was absolutely considered to be the right thing to do. The French were obsessed by or the French chattering classes were obsessed by the weakness of the average French male in terms of his ability to fight, and so putting on races with immense stage lengths was you know a way of demonstrating you know we we're, we're on the up um and so you know each stage was around about 280, 300 kilometers long and um, started at three o'clock in the morning. And went on till six in the afternoon or six of the next morning, um, but yeah, the, the French found it completely acceptable. Um, the only the only hint of criticism from anyone uh, was from a Belgian journalist who said it was basically just too much for the riders. It was inhuman to make them do that, but that wasn't about you know how. The war was being remembered or commemorated that was just about the physical demands placed on the riders i'm sure this
0: is something that you've researched um, but I'm, I'm curious about it because it's not something that we ever hear about but what was the cleanup operation and it's an awful word to use to describe the the aftermath of of the war but you know there must have been all these dead bodies skeletons Munitions, um, all kinds of w- war paraphernalia all over the place. What did they do with, with the land and, and how much of it is sort of kept cropping up years and years afterwards?
1: Well, in France, um, a large part of the Western Front was designated what they call the Zone Rouge, hence the title of the book, Riding in the Zone Rouge. Um, and this was deemed by the French government to be so badly affected by the war that it couldn't be put back to agriculture or human habitation. Now, obviously, a lot of farmers returned home in 1919 to say, well, hold on, you can't just write off my entire livelihood. And so uh, a lot of them campaigned to have their land reinstated, which was a slow process, but it happened. And the size of the zone rouge shrank massively. But, you know, the, the battlefields were littered with corpses, all of whom had to be dealt with. And the burial details were were still working in 1922 in some areas, um, retrieving battlefield burials and and reburying these guys in in cemeteries. And they they dug up and reburied uh, t- around 200,000 soldiers over over the course of those three or four years after the war. Plus, there was then, of course, thousands of tons of unexploded shells thousands more tons of unused shells, something like 330 million square meters of barbed wire. Um, You know, it was, it's funny because, you know, we kind of think November the 11th, everyone packed up and went home, but we don't think about the people who returned to their homes and what they returned to. And these guys had an unbelievably tough time, mostly living in cellars or, you know, Dugouts on battlefields. Uh, you know, lots and lots of people lived in in old dugouts for several years. Meanwhile, of course, the you know the battlefields were horrendously unhygienic. There's no drainage. The, you know, you had two million men on the Somme defecating for nine months. You know, that's um, not to put too fine a point on it. That's that's not going to be a pleasant thing to have to deal with. Um, so so yeah, the the people left behind afterwards had to work really hard to bring their land back to any kind of productivity. Um, and even then, you know, you do wonder quite how badly the the environment has been damaged by what happened then. In parts of Verdun, the, you know, the toxicity of the soil is still dangerous.
0: And are things still coming up out of the ground, even 100 years on?
1: Yeah, about 300 tonnes of unexploded ammunition every year are dealt by dealt with by the French authorities.
0: 300 tons.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I came across several stacks of unexploded shells on my on my bike trip. Um, you know, you, you don't like to go too near them because they're still live and they could go off. It's unlikely, but, you know, who wants to take that chance?
0: And so is there much archaeology going on still? Are people, you know, are there metal detectorists out there scouring the fields? I mean, or, or has that all happened?
1: No, it still happens. People still do that. Um, there is battlefield archaeology happening in a quite serious way. Uh, hill sixty on um, near Ypres um, is has just had a a, a crowd funded dig archaeological dig to um, excavate that hill and a lot of the tunnels under the western front of which there were you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of these things, uh, a lot of those have been excavated. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interest still um, and a lot of danger. So, you know, the French authorities and the Belgian authorities are pretty busy with that kind of stuff.
0: So let's turn from the Western Front, which um, has certainly been the focus of the um, remembrance and, and commemoration of the armistice um, centenary um, in Britain uh, over the last uh, few weeks Um, to a theatre of battle um, a few hundred kilometres to the east of there, on the mountainous border of Italy and Austria, because that's where you went next on your bicycle.
1: It is, yes. Having done the Western Front in both directions, I thought, what next? Um, And again, personal interest. uh, My maternal grandfather fought in Italy in 1918 with the Italians, um, and so I thought, why don't I ride my bike the length of the Italian front, uh, which seemed like a good idea to start with, um, and got progressively more painful as the mountain miles racked up.
0: Give us that great thumbnail sketch that you gave us of the Western Front in relation to, to this front. What, why why was it there? And what, what was it like at, at, at the time? What was the fighting like?
1: The fighting was, uh, in some ways, worse than on the Western Front, because the topography is so challenging. Uh, the Italian front runs in a sort of sideways S-shape from Trieste on the what used to be the Yugoslav border, and it runs north up the Isonzo Valley, which is where most of the fighting took place, and then it does a sort of loop through the Carnic Alps, down through the Dolomites, across to Lake Garda, and then back due north to the border with Switzerland and Old Austria. Uh, at the Stelvio so uh, that's a front line of around 400 miles lots of lovely uh, Giro d'Italia climbs for me to do along the way so I thought that sounds that sounds a good idea um in terms of fighting it was n- no fighting is good but this was particularly horrible because it was done at altitude mostly the terrain was so challenging um that the only real progress by either side that could be made was on the Isonzo front, which is which runs basically from Trieste to due north to almost the Austrian border. And here uh, they had twelve battles to try and break through the Italians to try and break through, and they had a million casualties, of which five hundred thousand were killed. So that's you know that's a staggering number of people dead. In a front line that's 50 miles long. That went on almost ceaselessly from the middle of 1915 to the end of 1917, at which point the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians broke through at Caporetto, which caused um, absolute panic, and the Italians withdrew 70 miles to a new front. In the high mountains, it was just incredibly difficult. You know, they're on the top of these Dolomites, top of these Alps, With cannons, you know, they lugged a six-tonne cannon to the top of an enormous mountain. And it took them 57 days to do it. 200 men pulling a cannon uphill for 57 days. There were huge logistical challenges and also the weather. Uh, More people were killed by the weather than were killed by the enemy. Um, There was one day in 1916 where 10,000 men were swept to their deaths by avalanches. Became known as White Friday, and you know to to have a battle in those conditions just seems extraordinary.
0: Does that area get lots of people visiting it to look at the uh, the battlefields and and the remains of of Alpine warfare, just like the Western Front does, or, or is it not quite so so heavily visited?
1: It's very rarely visited. Mostly because it's so inaccessible. You know, you you can't just drive your car for an hour from Calais to get there. You've got to get to the, to the front line and then get up. Uh, you know, a lot of these battles took place eight thousand feet, ten thousand feet. That there are places where there are cable cars that run up and you can have a look round. But equally, there were places where I climbed, uh, rock climbing, climbed up to to look at various positions. Uh, on the Marmolada Glacier, for instance. So, yeah, uh, there's there are very few people around, and as a result, there's still an awful lot of stuff lying around as well. You know, you can pick up bullets or cases, bits of shrapnel, bits of hand grenades. You know, all sorts of stuff is just lying around. So it's it's a very weird sensation to be on the top of an enormous mountain, um, just raking through bits of barbed wire and hand grenades. But uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff if you can make the effort to get there.
0: The first I saw about this journey that you were making, and and I was completely captivated after seeing the image, and and really enjoyed watching you go to other places. Was a photograph that you took and posted on Twitter, I think it was, of the the top of the Stelvio Pass, which is a very photographed place in the in the cycling world. It's this great. You know, massive hairpins that people ride up I and mean, it's certainly a place on the road cycling map but you'd taken this photograph that showed that as the background and in the foreground were all these military emplacements that that you'd reached by getting on your on your hands and knees and sort of climbing up the rocks above it and and it just made me think that that is the way to to make a journey. By bicycle um it, it's it's to look up and, and look beyond the road and see what there is if you carry on further up and, and you had some idea of i, I presume of what you're looking for but it absolutely yep. captured that idea of seeing something that 99 percent of the people who cycle the pass of the stelvio would not have seen what you saw there
1: no i mean i you know you have to know that it's there just out of interest, I did actually carry my bike up there as well. I didn't leave it down the bottom. <laughs> so I cycled to the top of the Stelvio on the road and then put my bike over my shoulder and climbed another 300 metres up the mountain.
0: Oh, well, I would, I would say that was very manly. If, if, you, if you hadn't already told me that your bike only weighs 7.5 kilograms, which I'm very envious about, I have to say, Tom. <laughs> you see, I can leave my bike at the pass because my bike weighs um, probably double that.
1: <laughs> well with luggage on my bike way double that but um <laughs> when they're touring you know I think people need to take more time and to look around them you know my, my kind of mantra is slow down and look up I want to enjoy what I'm doing what I'm seeing and I want time to process it you know so I don't want to do 100 mile days I can do them if I have to but you know that doesn't hold much joy for me I would rather go 40 miles and spend all day doing it if I get to look at something that's interesting along the way and that was that's certainly the case with the Stelvio and and also a few others you know I went over the Gavia as well and there's an interesting memorial to the Alpini there but you actually have to stop and get off and have a look at it so you know that's what I did.
0: What else did you learn and discover and how did it make you feel to go to these places?
1: The Italian front is one of just absolute astonishment. Uh, there, there were a couple of days where I left my bike somewhere secure and, you know, put on a, a harness and ropes and stuff and went and had a look at stuff high up. But yeah, the thing that I found was, you know, getting things up there, getting a six ton cannon onto the top of a mountain, just resupplying the troops who are up there, you know, it, it all has to come up in a primitive cable car. And the conditions the troops lived in. You could only do 20 minutes sentry duty before you froze. So, you know, you were, it was just extraordinary. And who thought that it was a good idea? I have no idea because of all the places to have a battle, 12,000 feet up a Alp is not one of them, I would say, but that's what they did. How did
0: you do your research for these trips? Because it seems to me that doing a bit of research before you go is is pretty essential.
1: I think so. I think it's important to have at least a, a fairly clear historical and cultural idea of what you want to see and what you might want to look at. And so the Western Front is easy. There are a million books in English about the Western Front.
0: you care to pick out a few that you think would be particularly useful for people?
1: Probably the best one is Before Endeavours Fade by Ru- Rose Coombs, which is the most definitive battlefield guide in terms of what there is to look at. It doesn't go into a great deal of depth of information about those places, but it's the kind of the go-to one. Uh, apart from that, uh, Pen and Sword do quite a lot of, of specific guidebooks. So I've got, you know, Walking Arras and Vimy Ridge and those kind of things. So, yeah. Um, and the Italian side? The Italian side is a nightmare because there are only about four books in English about the Italian uh, front during World War I. So I obviously bought all of the (laughs) English language books and read them. But I also bought a few Italian books, which I use an app on my iPad called Text Grabber, which basically takes a picture of the book page and then uses Google Translate to translate it into something that's not quite English. That was that's been a labor of love doing that. Um, But my Italian is getting slightly better. Yeah, it's it's been very difficult, very hard, and I've relied on on various uh, people on Twitter, Twitter historians, to to help me out with my research as well, which has been invaluable. So yeah, researching the Italian Front has been quite tricky, I have to admit.
0: And so on the practical side of things, um, you told us a little bit about your your bike. Um, what what tips would you give to people who are thinking of making either these journeys or or one similar?
1: It really depends on, on how you like to do your touring. I'm not, I'm not one for panniers and, and well, the sort of stuff that you probably do, Jack, to be honest. I prefer to keep it light, so I use um, bike bikepacking kit. I've got a medium-sized saddlebag and a medium-sized bar bag, um, and that's it. I have seven kilos of luggage, which is basically some spare riding kit and a spare pair of pants, and that's the lot. It's a challenge to get, you know, to get your luggage down to, to seven kilos worth. But I kind of thought, well, I would, I, you know, particularly on the Italian front, if you're doing a lot of mountains, and I did 78,000 feet of climbing on that trip. So, you know, you don't want to lug a single gram more than you have to up those mountains. Um, in terms of gearing, well, it depends on the terrain. I was, I was running a 29 on the back of my uh, compact group set and that was not enough <laughs> so uh yes yeah, so decently low gearing particularly if you're hauling a lot of luggage
0: and where where were you staying i presumably you weren't you weren't sleeping out with your 7.5 kilos of luggage
1: yeah i'm much too old for all that camping malarkey so um cheap b&b's and cheap hotels was where i stayed
0: um were you able to find those on the, on the hoof or did you did you have to book those in advance
1: Again, because I'm a pre-planner, I book them in advance. On my uh, Western Front trip, it all went a bit pear-shaped when I smashed all my ribs to pieces and had to come home for a month. So that threw my planning out the window. But you know, these days, with the right app on your phone, you can book anywhere you like. It's it's very easy to change the plan if you need to. But I do like to start with a plan.
0: How did making the journeys change your perceptions and appreciations of of the subject that you were interested in looking at, how how, how did you get on with the the quest to uh, to discover something by actually being there, by making that journey, by making that journey by bicycle?
1: I'm not sure whether it it ch- it changed me much, really. It gave me a, a deeper understanding of of the experience of the man on the battlefield, in some respects. In that, you know, the more you read about these guys, the more you Go to the places where they fought and died. The more you feel that you can connect to them, particularly, I think, with my great uncle and my grandfather. The first time I went to the the battlefields in search of my great uncle, I just sobbed like a baby half the time. It was pathetic, but you know there was somehow a, a real attachment, a emo- an emotional reaction, and that's why you know I would never be a good historian because I kind of empathize I think far too deeply with these guys to allow me to, to take a uh an objective view so I don't know it's it's a very powerful thing I find it may not be for everyone but for me being on those battlefields seeing where those people did extraordinary things made me yeah made me feel humble made me feel very grateful and made me feel angry and sad because you know at the end of the day none of this should have happened and an entire generation was not lost but either lost or emotionally damaged it's uh yeah it's it's for me it's quite an emotional journey
0: well, that's that's that sounds that feels like a very good way to to end it but um so I may end end there um yep but I want to ask you I want to just get a little bit um Get a bit more from you on um, this this issue of of having a purpose to um, make a journey. Um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask it to you directly, and I'll, I'll figure out a way of, of filling it in. <laughs> in. Um, yep. So I, as I said in the introduction, I one of my I'm as I said in the introduction, I'm delighted that touring and travelling and, and, and journeys have become suddenly. A fashionable thing in cycling. I mean, they've always been going on. People have always used bicycles to make journeys and they've always made journeys that are that are interesting in some ways. But the thing that I find intensely annoying at the minute and I uh, get frustrated about is the emphasis on speed and distance and and almost nothing else. How far can I go? How fast can I go? How can I push myself? How can I see what I am as a person able to achieve in terms of speed and distance and toughness and altitude and, and whatever it is whereas what attracted me to the the journeys that you made particularly this one in the um Alps was that you had a purpose of research that engaged your mind engaged your emotions that gave a shape to the journey and gave it more much more meaning than than simply can I complete this huge amount of cycling in three weeks or whatever? Uh, That's something that I really liked. And why why do you think more people aren't making those kind of journeys and how would you convince them uh, to do so?
1: I do wonder whether social media has a certain amount to do with, you know, this obsession with further, longer, more crazy than ever before. I do wonder whether, if there wasn't a huge amount of social media coverage, whether anyone would ever bother with these things, but um, who knows? I mean, from my own point of view, I like to have a purpose. I like to follow in the footsteps of somebody or something. I like to... My Italy trip was about following as closely as I could the World War I front um, in Italy and, and finding out about... Uh, what they call a forgotten front. You know, uh, very few people know that 80,000 Brits were shipped over to the Italian front in the end of 1917 and fought in the Battle of Vittorio Veneto in 1918. And my grandfather was there from November 17 to February 19. If you can tie something into a family member or a story you like. I mean, the other thing I've been thinking of doing is following in the wheel tracks of Kouklos when he cycled across France to the the Western Front. Um, It's one of those fantastic books that, you know, you read and you think, oh, my goodness, uh, a journalist on a bike cycled to the Western Front and didn't get shot or arrested.
0: Because we have to say that this was in 1914.
1: In 1914, yeah. Just as the war was beginning. So, you know, he he did that extraordinary journey. And I've, as I tend to do, I've plotted it on Ride With GPS. And I'm thinking, well, I might go and do that next year. Simply because I I do quite like to reenact or revisit or, you know, to to have some some kind of handle to, to hang it on
0: there was a little flurry um a couple of years well actually it was at the start of the commemorations of the centenary of the first war or even before that actually with um people retracing edward thomas's journey in pursuit of spring that he made in um i think it was 1913 easter 1913 and he obviously yeah. was a the, the, you know became um celebrated as a war poet and and was killed in in the war um, and he yep. rode from his home in Clapham to the Quantocks um on the um on the Somerset coast of the Bristol Channel and a number of people did do that ride or or, or as close as they could do given the state of the roads <laughs> it, it, maybe it's a lack of imagination that people have that they they think oh, well I'll do this how fast can I do this how would you go about finding a quest that's a little bit more interesting than that i mean it's something that captures your imagination what pointers can we give to people to to come up with an idea that may give their their bicycle journey, their bicycle tour a, a little bit more meaning?
1: I think it's it's things that you are interested in. I think that's that's really what it comes down to. You know, I've got a, a sort of wish list of other things I want to do. I absolutely love Neolithic stone circles. So I'm determined to ride my bike all over the the UK visiting I don't know as many, or I don't know something. I you know I want to do that stone circle thing because that's another interest of mine. You know, if I just wanted to cycle 200 miles without stopping, I could sit on the turbo trainer with Zwift and do it that way. You know, because you're not going to get a different experience really by doing it on the road. You're just head down, putting in the miles. And you know, some people like that, and good luck to them. But you know, from my point of view, slow down, look up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find it particularly when you're travelling on your own, it gives you something to think about because you don't have the opportunity to chat to someone you're riding with at the end of the yep. day when you're on your own in the, you're camping or you're in a in a guest house or in a restaurant having your supper. It gives you something you can you read your book, find out a bit more about where you've been today and, and where you're going tomorrow. Um, yep, absolutely. It, it kind of engages the mind. and And I think also probably actually... It gives you an, a way of in, interacting with, with the people that you meet along your chosen route because you would imagine that they would have some familiarity with the subject that you're looking at and probably may be actually quite useful for helping you out finding things because that's where they live. Exactly um, so it's that. A, it's a great excuse to sort of strike up a conversation with somebody.
1: Yeah. And and those conversations uh, sometimes, I mean, I had an astonishing conversation with uh, somebody on my Italian trip where I discovered that she spoke Latin, which is that strange, not quite Latin, but not quite Romance Swiss language. And it only exists in three valleys or four valleys in the Dolomites. I had no idea that such a thing even existed but yet there was this girl talking in this strange language really strange but you know you wouldn't get that if you just put your head down and did 100 miles a day
0: and I think it also is a different kind of posture for the traveler to adopt rather than one that's very um, almost egocentrical it's actually showing an interest in in the place that you are in and the people who inhabit that place yeah. And a bit of respect, maybe. Um, and I think that gets repaid, and uh, not only just in good karma, because it's a it's a more positive, healthy posture to have in relation to a place, but but actually in, in, in very practical terms, if people who you meet get the sense that you've done some research and that you found out about this area, that you're interested in it from a certain point of view, that you're passionate about discovering more, that they're, they're going to regard you in, in a much more positive way um, and, and be helpful and welcoming and...
1: Yeah, and, and as you say, they, they make suggestions, you know, have you been here or... Or let me, let me show you this. Exactly that. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, you know, that if you can interact um, with people along your way in a, in a respectful and inquisitive way, I think they, you know, that, that really pays dividends.
0: It strikes me that the internet has made it a lot easier. I mean, you blamed the internet and social media for the people's obsession with kind of going harder, faster, stronger, whatever. Um, but I, I think that the internet actually gives you a lot of research tools that, that for free that you wouldn't have had before the internet to to look up, look up, look up old maps, look up old books, find stories. Just just one off the top of my head is um there's a new interactive map of all the Iron Age hillforts. Um, in, the, in the British Isles, which I think documents over four thousand sites, yeah. And so, yeah. if you know, you could make a, a journey taking those in. I mean, there are all sorts of resources on the web that would help you come up with a quest. Um, or, or, and it doesn't have, and a quest maybe sounds a bit cheesy, but just something that is giving some structure to the journey that you're going to make. And and as you said, to be inquisitive about.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, you know, as I've been a a journalist all my working life and I, you know, started way back in the 70s and, you know, finding anything out took forever. And now it's all at the click of a mouse. You know, there's so much information, as you say, free information out there that researching an idea for for a journey is so much easier than it was 20 years ago.
0: Well, tell us one more time, Tom, about your book that's out next year
1: it's called riding in the zone rouge uh, by tom isett and it's published by orion books on march the 21st 2019 Um, there will also be an e-version and uh, an audio book as well so um yeah looking forward to it
0: and people can follow you on the in, in the the dreadful social media world and i'll put links to all your handles on the bike show Website. Um, thanks f- very much for spending the time with us uh, today, Tom. It's, it's much appreciated, and look forward to um, to following your um, your future journeys, uh, whether they're around battlefields or Neolithic stone circles.
1: <laughs> thanks very much, Jack.
0: Okay, great. Um, anything else do you wanted to say I that we've missed? I don't
1: think so. I don't know whether I've made a complete hash of that no, it was or not. Great. It was terrific. I, this, is, this is not my natural milieu. Yeah, yeah, I have no, to it was say, terrific. no, it's
0: great, really interesting.
1: Yeah. Okay, good.
0: Um, no, I think um I think I mean we could have gone into um other battlefields but maybe people are a bit OD'd on battlefields. I mean Well, there the is
1: that there is that slight danger and my publisher said that there is a bit of World War 1 fatigue setting in. Or just
0: that, that that it's you know I think maybe for some people it's a bit of a turn off um because it's so sad and it's just yeah. you know particularly I think people cycling, you know, tend to be quite anti-war um well yeah and, although like like can i maybe can i can i ask you a question about that um yeah we're still, we're still rolling we're still we're still rolling um yep. <clears throat> so you you've done these two tours of first world war uh fronts um and i think there may be a few people listening who think that going round an old battlefield is is a bit of a turn-off there's something a little bit morbid about going to see a place where so many people died. Did you have any mixed feelings about, about it, about going to these places and, and being immersed in them for so long?
1: I do. It's not an always comfortable experience. Uh, it, it's kind of like going to Auschwitz. Uh, I went there a few years ago and I really didn't want to, but I kind of felt that I should and I went and it was horrible. Um, But I'm really glad I went because I think we need to, you know, we need to look at history in order to not make those same mistakes. And World War One was was a colossal mistake from the word go. So, yeah, it's it's grim at times. It's not a laugh a minute, but an awful lot of young men died for something. Whether you agree with what that something was, whether they even knew what that something was, difficult to tell, but it's uncomfortable at times and not really fun, but it is fascinating. And I think that's what that's what I find so appealing is that there is a fascination. And the more you look at the people involved, you know, just Joe Soap, the life he had to live, the, the things that he had to do is... Um, we need to remember that and we need to learn from it uh, and with politics at the moment you kind of think there never was a better time for us to learn from what has happened on your
0: journeys you were able to go each side of of the of the front line and and see the memorials for the fallen of of either side of of the war and what did you observe in the differences in the way um different countries remember their dead and, and, and the experience of of World War One.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating to see those differences. I think the main difference is obviously between the victors and the losers. Uh, a lot of the British memorials are quite triumphalist, feel quite triumphalist, whereas certainly on the Western Front, the, the German were subdued. Very often they're crammed into small places because the local authorities didn't give them the space that they gave to the, the British cemeteries. So they tend to be buried in mass graves in places like Langmark. Interestingly, in on the Aust- Austrian-Italian front, the Austrian cemeteries have been allowed to sort of return to nature. It's, it's a cultural thing um, with the Austro-Hungarians that, yes, you commemorate them, you put those headstones there, but then you kind of leave it to, for nature to reclaim and um, I don't know you know it depends on your point of view which is better but but it's an interesting difference you know the commonwealth war grave cemeteries are beautifully tended immaculate and get a lot of visitors the austro-hungarian ones are generally rarely visited and have kind of got that returning to nature feel to them
0: and, and how about the german ones on the western front
1: well, they tend to be quite, um, quite Spartan, quite very plain and, again, receive very, very few visitors. Um, generally, the visitors you do see at the German ones tend to be English or English-speaking visitors rather than the Germans themselves. And I suppose, you know, it's, it's hard for the Germans if you've been on the losing side you know how, how do you feel about the sacrifice that your country made for a cause that is generally considered to be the wrong cause? It, you know, it must be very hard.
0: I was talking there with Tom Isett, and his book, Riding in the Zone Rouge, is out next month in March 2019. Now, at the start of the show, I mentioned the Wayfarer Centenary Weekend, which I'm helping to organise on the last weekend of March. One of the clubs that's helping to promote the weekend and make it happen is the Rough Stuff Fellowship, and I'm delighted to be joined down the line from his home in Sheffield by Mark Hudson, who is the archivist of the Rough Stuff Fellowship. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Jack. So what is the Rough Stuff Fellowship? It sounds, if you didn't know, uh, like some kind of late Victorian secret sadomasochistic society with a Vaguely socialist agenda. Is that, that that can't be what it is?
2: Sadly, not. Uh, the Rough Stuff Fellowship is the oldest off-road cycling club in the world, uh, which was formed in 1955 in a pub called the Black Swan.
0: Who were the members, and and what were they what were they doing? What were they doing on their bikes that made them decide to to form a club?
2: It was orchestrated by a chap called bill paul who was inspired by a gentleman who went under the name of wayfarer who was doing off-road riding at the turn of the century on tracks bridleways. obviously there wasn't much road stuff then anyway but he was an advocate for getting off the beaten track and finding new and remote places to ride and Bill Paul was inspired by Wayfarer and wanted to see if there were other like-minded people who wanted to do such things, and put various ads in a couple of magazines, um, in newspapers, and got together a, a band of uh, men and women. And they met up pub in nineteen fifty-five. Uh, There's about forty or fifty. At the original inaugural meeting, and uh, from that, um, the rough stuff was formed, um, and is I'm pleased to say still going now. So,
0: adventure cycling is kind of all the rage at the moment, and obviously there's mountain biking, which most people think kind of came into being in Northern California in the in the, in the 1970s. What's the difference between rough stuff cycling? Mountain biking and adventure cycling.
2: Um, I guess really, it's the it's the machine. I mean, the the terrain is is very similar. It's just um, they're just different names for the, the same thing. As far as I'm concerned, um, mountain biking obviously originally was formed as as a downhill you know the original clunkers were more of a it's a downhill racing and which then developed into more mountain biking as we know it now um but the rough stuff fellowship were doing things that mountain bikers were doing later on after the sort of the clunkers version on road everyday road bikes or three speed sturmis, roadsters anything that was available at the time. Um and adventure cycling is is I think probably a, a mixture of both those things. It's um, you know, another term for what was being done already.
0: So it's about going off road, carrying on where the, the sealed road, the tarmac road stops and carrying your bike, <laughs> pushing your bike where necessary. Pretty
2: much, yeah. I mean it's the the rough stuff wanted to basically get wherever they could to the remotest places where walkers used to go ramblers they were actually quite happy to get off and walk and amble up a mountain or a hillside with the bike it wasn't you know there's there's a maybe there's a, a little bit of uh, the competitive element with some adventure cycling now that's there is that crossover but the sort of fellowship were were more interested in taking it all in they'd stop brew up have a cup of tea eat some food and then go over the next pass it was a it's like a it was a, a day out weekend or a sort of multi-day trip
0: what kind of journeys did they make what are the kind of journeys that you as the archivist have been finding out about
2: everywhere basically there's a lot from scotland there was a big Lancashire section. That was the first group to be formed. There's multi days in Wales, lots of trips to Europe, Norway, Iceland, uh, the Swiss, French Alps.
0: So tell us a bit about your role as the archivist of the Rough Stuff Fellowship.
2: There'd been a couple of ads in the Rough Stuff Journal. Um, no one seemed to be replying to the um request for an archivist which was basically to house the club's history documents letters basically things that were scattered across the country um and i kept seeing the ad and wondering why no one was sort of taking on the role and so i just basically put my hat in the ring myself and got the job (laughs) by default i suppose but um got a interest in history cycling history anyway from I used to do and still do jumbles uh used to collect bikes and have a bit of an obsession with the older stuff, so I thought it was a bit of a nice crossover being a member anyway the rough stuff um it was sort of fitting with what I was passionate about anyway. There was a couple of things turned up a few documents. Uh, and a few photos but I had to sort of go digging around really I I contacted a few older members and then I I started to get whispers and murmurs of collections of slides and lots of photographs which eventually I, I managed to track down one of which is Bob Harrison's which is a collection of I've not counted every single one, but I estimate there's at least ten thousand slides, all housed in.
0: This is these are these are photographic transparencies, kind of mounted in uh, little bits of card or plastic. for For those of the digital era, these are these are photographs on on um, you know, well, not negative film, but the positive film, the transparency.
2: Yeah, film. in plastic or the
0: kind of stuff that you project out of a exactly, slide projector. Yeah.
2: They're all labelled, they're all numbered, location is on everyone, the dates on everyone. I mean it's it's unbelievable how much sort of time and effort he's put into not only doing the rides himself but getting back and documenting this pretty much the history of the club is in this one collection.
0: Because you've been posting some of them on Instagram as you've been scanning them and and, and looking through them, and uh, the Instagram account is RSF Archive, and they are great photographs. It's it's one thing to you know, take a camera with you and 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 snap away while on a bike trip, but these are some of the best, if not the best, photographs I've seen of of cycling. Uh, they're just very very accomplished photography um it's it's amazing
2: yeah i mean there's hardly a bad shot really there's obviously repetitions because it spans such a such an era from early 50s goes right through to when he died in early 2000 2002 is is the last slide uh but yeah i mean the composition the, the quality is is well it's i agree it's it's the best i've i've seen and uh, we're obviously you know very lucky lucky to have it and lucky to be that it was documented in such a way it's not just they're not just great photos and you can sort of wonder where they are or you you recognize a place that i mean it's not only are the slides individually dated with the location there's then an index on the back of the lid of each slide box that gives you the duplicate information again so it's 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 an incredible resource and social document as well as a, a cycling history i suppose
0: and is it just his photographs or are there other photographers whose work is in the archive
2: the the bulk of it at the moment is bob's bob harrison's um i've got a number of albert win stanley's negatives uh, medium format negatives Albert was a, an early member also, written a couple of cycling books, did various articles for a number of cycling publications as well as sort of country magazines, um, quite a different style. It's quite interesting, the contrast. I mean, you've got bobs that are meticulously indexed and then um, Albert's are sort of like stuffed in biscuit tins in handmade envelopes all the envelopes are numbered but the pieces of paper folded over very neatly but with like four or five negatives in each and then just crammed there must be a couple of thousand in sort of three biscuit tins just just stuffed in there um they came they came with uh, bob's slides and i don't th- well, I'm certain they're not all of Albert's, because um, I know Albert was prolific as well. Um, I think some of Albert's stuff went to Warwick, which or a a library. Um, but I'm still trying to, hopefully, trying to track a, a few more of Albert's down because um, there's there's definitely definitely more out there, and yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of slides and. They're they're the two main the main uh, people at the moment.
0: And is there anything besides photographs?
2: Loads of information, routes, trip accounts, and then there's a the fifty eight Iceland expedition, which was the first land crossing to be made by bicycle of, of Iceland um by four members of the rough stuff. That's a, an amazing, amazing time capsule.
0: And you've got some beautiful hand-drawn maps as well.
2: Yeah, Clem Clements' um, maps, they're incredible. Hand-drawn, in biro, um, really intricate. A full folder of all over all over the UK, um, all over Europe, lots of Alps. Um, and they, they date back to the the early 60s. So that's another incredible resource.
0: And you've been putting a certain amount of this stuff on Instagram as I mentioned and the reception um to what people have seen has been incredible, hasn't it? It's been really I mean people there's so many people saying this is the best thing on the internet right now, let alone the best thing on Instagram. And the good news is that you're going to be turning it into a book. You want to tell us a bit a bit about how, how the stuff has been received and and where the idea of turning it into a book came from
2: it was pretty overwhelming Uh, as I say when I took the role on that I didn't really know what was what was going to happen I just thought it was a it was going to be a few index cards and the odd photo here and there and and I I got a few little bits and bobs and then once the photos started coming um, I just thought it'd be nice to to share it really as as opposed to me just gathering it into one place and it being stuffed in a box again for the next sort of 50 years, I just thought it'd be a, you know, it'd be a nice thing to, for people to see. And so I set the Instagram account up with literally what at the time I had sort of maybe 30, 40 photographs and it sort of gradually got picked up. And then once I got Bob's stuff, which was August, September time, And I started getting things scanned in sort of groups of 150, 200 images at a time. I was able to then obviously consistently put things up more regularly. The months went on. Sort of back end of last year, there was constant requests to do a book or suggestions to do a book, which I'd not really given any thought to at the time. I I was just sort of happy to, to share them on Instagram, but then got to thinking, well, actually there is there is at least one really really good book to be had just in in bob's stuff alone and so i ended up chatting with max leonard who did the rough stuffs in the alps book and he basically asked me said if i wanted a hand with anything um wanted any advice in doing a book then to give him a shout and then we just started chatting from there really and um it's come about that, yeah, we set a Kickstarter up um, and that's gone through the roof. We um, had a really amazing, positive response from that. So we're, I'm pleased to say we're funded and the book is, is definitely happening.
0: You you asked originally, you were trying to get 12,000 or something and you, you're you over 40,000 now in, in pledges on the Kickstarter. I mean, that's that's fantastic. So the book is definitely happening. And if you want to order one, I'll uh, pre order one, um, now's the time to do it because um I'm sure it'll be the best price in the Kickstarter and obviously helping with the project, helping the project get along. Um there's there's various, yeah, various rewards. You can join the Rough Stuff Fellowship. I'm a member of the Rough Stuff Fellowship. Um and I can highly highly recommend it. It's um yeah, it's a great little club. Um I haven't done a lot of um meeting up with the with with rough stuff people largely because there isn't much in the um the area where i live i mean i just want i wonder what is the state of health of the rough stuff fellowship th- these days because it does feel as though maybe it's something that you know it's heyday was some uh some decades ago what, what's your sense on um on, on the actual fellowship itself and how the book and, and the work on the archive might you know, start uh, a, a renaissance in the club. Yeah,
2: I hope that's the case. I mean, I I think it's always ticked along. There's always been a, a certain amount of core members, um, and I think it's sort of happily sat really in the background doing what they doing what they're doing. I mean, it, it's the sort of nature of of what they do or what we do. It's there's no applause on a more or a mountain pass they don't go up there for you know um for plaudits so i think that's the sort of nature of the club where it, it just ticks along in the background but i mean also there is the fear that because of that as the as the membership grows older that it it will cease to exist and so i think what the instagram feed has done and the the sharing of the photos has, has sort of made it known to people that that simply weren't aware of it. And with the crossover with the whole adventure bike thing, I think it, it taps into that and um, people are inspired by what has gone on before. Uh, I think we've got over 100 new members as as part of the, the book pledge. I'm hopeful that the book, the the feed – Will bring us new members, and that it's going to carry on for another sixty years
0: yeah well, I really hope so too um and if you want to be inspired um, about taking your bike off the uh, off the tarmac and onto um, onto the onto the rougher trails and and paths of of wherever you live, um, this book will definitely do that, and it will also be a a really useful kind of tutorial in in what makes a great cycling photograph, because as I said, I don't think I've seen a better collection and, um, as someone who takes photographs to put in my own books, you know, there's a certain amount of um, professional, uh, well, there's a lot of professional respect and a, and, a, and a certain slice of professional envy because, um, some of the photography is just, it's just outstanding. Um, and, and just the way they look and the, and the kind of things that they're doing and the, the way that they look like they're enjoying themselves, it, it presents to me a kind of cycling that I love and it's the kind of cycling that maybe is a little bit different from what is promoted by, I don't know, the mainstream bike industry, um, a lot of the sport-focused cycling stuff. It's just it's just a different way of looking at cycling, but I think it's the kind of way that will appeal to, to a lot of people.
2: I think that's that's the essence of it, really. It, it doesn't take itself too seriously, even though what they are doing is you know arguably extremely dangerous and probably some of the the toughest cycling that you can do and and or walking with your bike i mean you know the the whole cape thing long socks short shorts it it brings a smile to your face but then you you realize just where they are it's it's very remote so you've you've got that you've got that clash of humor and um also respect for the landscape
0: so the book is going to be out in May is that right that's what it says on the Kickstarter page
2: yeah we're hopeful that it's going to be ready for May yeah
0: well if you want to see some of the photographs before that you can obviously take a look at the Instagram page but even better you can uh, come to the Wayfarer centenary weekend because Mark you are very kindly going to be giving a slideshow in the in the pub where the, the the whole weekend's based on the Friday night. It's kind of kicking off the weekend and you're also going to be putting together a little exhibition of rough stuff, fellowship memorabilia um, that people can take a look at um, at any point during the weekend.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'll be sifting through some slides um, and yeah, I'll have Bob Harrison's bike with me, which will be on display various stoves camping equipment, based the stuff that you used to and still do use for um, doing a bit of rough stuff. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the weekend.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it too. And I will put information about the Wayfarer Centenary Weekend and a link to the Rough Stuff Fellowship Archive Kickstarter on the Bike Show website, which is thebikeshow.net. Thanks so much, Mark, for for joining us to talk about the Rough Stuff Fellowship. And, um, well, I'll see you at the end of next month in um, in North East Wales. Yeah, thanks
2: very much, Jack.
0: Okay, and uh, thanks to you for listening. It's been a long show, but um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, goodbye.